0: Welcome to the latest edition of the Moses and Methuselah podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, and with me today, as in every edition of these podcasts, is my friend and professional sparring partner, the author and fund manager, Peter Simon. In this series of 10 podcasts, we will be discussing a number of the big themes that are currently preoccupying the financial markets, in which we have both been professionally involved for the best part of four decades. A tour of duty that prompted us to choose very much tongue-in-cheek the title of this series. Are we wise or simply old and set in our ways? We leave you to decide. In this uh, episode of the Moses and Methuselah podcast, Peter, we're going to talk about a film called The Post, which is essentially a drama directed by Steven Spielberg, based on a real life event, which is the controversy uh, about so-called Pentagon Papers which was an episode in the 1970s when somebody leaked some very damaging, or so it was said, material about the way that the American government was behaving in the Vietnam War. And the Post tells the story of how that story was eventually reported by the New York Times and the Washington Post uh, and eventually led to a decision in the Supreme Court, which had profound implications for the relationship between the press, and the state. So, Peter, I know you've watched this film. It only came out about uh, five years ago. As I say, it was quite, it was pretty successful. It starred it had some big names in it. Meryl Streep and uh, Tom Hanks were the two leading actors. Uh, and it say it tells the story in a very Spielberg like way. So it's set as a kind of a sort of mini thriller. I wouldn't say it was a huge thriller. There's not a lot of action involved in it, but there is, it does build up the tension as the two sides in this uh, very important uh, constitutional issue uh, battled it out to decide whether these Pentagon papers, which had been leaked, were legitimate for the newspapers to publish. So tell me first, Peter, what was your reaction to this film? And then we can look more at some of the issues that it raised about the media, about the law, and indeed about the conduct of the Vietnam War and so on.
1: It's nice to be back online. I enjoy the film very much. I watched it twice. I like the actors because I think Meryl Streep is a very good good actress. And Tom Hanks is one of my favorite actors. And uh, Spielberg is actually one of my favorite directors. Um, So that was a very good combination, but it also touched on a period of, I know your life because we're the same age and my life when one was Getting into one's career and sort of hovering between university and work. And one was very much, in inverted commas, involved in the Vietnam War. And one was also surrounded by a lot of people, friends, who questioned whether the war was sensible. Um, And so looking at this film and digging slightly deeper into the Pentagon Papers led me to see and I didn't realize it at the time, and I'd be curious to know if you had an inkling of all that at the time, or whether it all came out later, that in fact, there was a secret agenda at the very highest levels of politics in America. And that of course, as usual, when you look at this situation of the Vietnam War, it's very important to have a map in front of you so that you can understand what the big picture was. So it was only long after this decade that these things began to emerge, you know, Defense Secretary McNamara and uh, what his agenda was. So slowly but surely you unpeel the onion and you discover all sorts of new things that you didn't, didn't know. So that I thought was very interesting and very well covered by that film.
0: Yes. And I think there's no secret about the fact that the timing of this film, I mean, Spielberg was actually making two films at the same time when he was making this film. Uh, so it was a bit of a rush job, but it, uh, I don't think it was unconnected with the fact that Donald Trump had just been elected as president of the United States. There was that aspect to it. It was an attempt to point out the fact that he'd already built this agenda around fake news and, and so on. Uh, So it was uh, already becoming a uh, a topical issue. I think that wasn't the main purpose of the film. But the main purpose of the film was to obviously emphasize this issue about uh, whether the press had the right to report what was going on. Indeed, whether the American administration was right to do what it done. And the the shocking part about the Pentagon Papers, which I do remember when at the time, because I was uh, literally just about to go to university uh, when this all happened. Uh, and the shocking, there were a lot of you know protests at the time about the Vietnam War. If you remember, it wasn't just students, it was a lot of liberal people were concerned about what was happening and the justification for the war in Vietnam. And the shocking thing about the Pentagon papers when they were uh, leaked, and uh, they have obviously subsequently been declassified, and you can read them all, I think the really shocking thing was that this degree of deception, if you like, by the American government about the, about the uh, what it was actually trying to do in Vietnam, and indeed how well the war was going in Vietnam, uh, had gone back all the way to Eisenhower. It had been gone through Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson and Nixon, who just got elected just around this time. So it had gone back through administrations of both parties. And one of the fascinating things about the film, which it tries to bring out, is that, of course, the publisher of The Washington Post, uh, Kay Graham, had very close relationships with the Republican uh, senior uh, people. They, she was friends and naturally moved in their circle. Uh, while ben, ben Bradley, who was the executive editor of the Washington Post, the Tom Hanks character and a very you know notorious figure in uh, in the history of journalism, a hero to many, uh, was obviously very close to Jack Kennedy and a and a fan of his. who Used to have lunch or dinner with him every week, uh, and so he was uh, pretty shocked to discover that actually Kennedy also had been, if you like, complicit in this uh, attempt by the administration to. Uh, cover up what was going or not to cover up, but to conceal what was actually going on in the Vietnamese war and and the final point about that, of course was that uh, more important perhaps than you know whether the uh, the press was involved was the fact that you know a lot of young Americans were being sent off being drafted to go to Vietnam and were killed and were dying in in not inconsiderable numbers uh, in a war that the Pentagon had already described or at least uh, knew uh, they were not winning they knew they were not winning the war and so, You know, the allegation was that, you know, these young men were being brave, young men were being sent off to fight in a far off country about which they knew very little for a purpose that uh, was itself arguable, whether it was a a just war, if you like, uh, and that in any event, they weren't winning it and weren't going to win it. So I think that was the real kind of moral force behind the disclosure of the Pentagon Papers. Uh, And then secondarily, which also had an impact on me, was the fact that, you know, governments, the state cannot always be trusted. To say that the state cannot
1: always be trusted is a bit of an understatement, <laughs> I can put it that way. But you're absolutely right. And people like you and I, we were both of the same age as those people that were sent to die uh, in Vietnam. And I remember at the time, now I can't really swear that this is true, but I remember being told that if you lived in America and you worked there as a, with a green card as a foreigner, as a non-US citizen, you could have been drafted into the Vietnam War by virtue of having that work permit, the green card, which I don't know if it's true, but if it is true, it would have meant that people like you and I, if we happened to be doing some kind of internship in the US, we could have been drafted in with all the horrors uh, that followed. And I can very well understand that it's very difficult to persuade young people of that generation of the need to go to a faraway country, of which one knows little, as you call it, (laughs) very apt description, particularly when that country is even further away, than uh, Czechoslovakia, which was the original faraway country, of which we knew little. But then if you, as I was alluding to before, if you rise above this and you look at the map, you can see that what the Americans were trying to do at all costs was to prevent communism, especially under the leadership of the Chinese, who would, let's say, the Cold War with with China was in full swing at the time. There was not yet an opening that came later. But it was very obvious that China wanted to control the Indochina Peninsula, because it would have enabled them to have control over that, all those, the seas there, which is, of course, what they always wanted. And so you should also ask yourself whether the fact that the US lost the war, because they lost the Vietnam War, and they had to pull out, and the result was that Vietnam was taken over by the Viet Cong was a communist government for years to come, whether that was one of the big U.S. failures and whether that which they tried to prevent at the time through the Vietnam War was in fact not achieved and resulted in China having the position as a world power that it has today. So I think from that point of view, I think one has to grow a little bit older and become Moses or Methuselah in order to appreciate a little bit the difference in thinking between how one thinks today about these things and how one thinks at the time. The other two points I want to just make, and then we can discuss them, is A, is what happened at the Washington Post typical of a situation where the owner of the newspaper is, let's say, a Republican, whereas the editor of newspaper is a Democrat or the other way around, and whether it is right or not right that the owner influences the editor. And the second point, which is, I think, very interesting, is that the Supreme Court judgment about the release of the Pentagon Papers into the public was based on the idea, and I quote, that the press is here to serve the governed and not to serve the governors, end of quote. So those are the two questions I want to ask you. I'm very interested. What happens if the editor and the owner are of a different political color? And what about the press being there to serve the governed and not the governors, Jonathan?
0: Right. Well, those are indeed big questions. And of course, unfortunately, they're not black and white. And this, of course, is, is, is the reason why there are still issues that people debate, it's because they aren't black and white but you can you can incline towards one answer rather than the other and uh, depending on your you know your views about the world so on the first one the difference between ownership and and the editor i mean that is a very important practical issue it was important in the 1930s for example when uh, you know newspapers certainly in the uk but also in the united states uh, have tended to be owned by families essentially privately owned and it's perfectly good that they are privately owned we certainly don't want state own newspapers. So we have to have privately owned newspapers, and that's uh, very important. But of course, the owners who buy newspapers they often tend to be quite rich men or successful corporations who have, you know, inevitably have commercial interests as well. Uh, one of those commercial interests in the case of the Washington Post was to keep the Washington Post in business because there was a risk that it would be put out of business, uh, and the heavy handed response of the Nixon administration. Uh, they'd actually threatened the paper to put it out of business. So as the owner, Kay Graham certainly had that issue to, to resolve, and the film talks about that. But in terms of the political ownership, yes, I mean, it's always been a big issue. If you go back to uh, Lord Beaverbrook in the 1930s, or many of the American papers as well, uh, the Times in the 1930s was, was very much seen as a, a appeasing Hitler, or uh, being inclined to appease Hitler. Likewise, the the Rothermere family. And in the modern times, we've seen other examples of that as well, of course, where, um, you know, there have been issues about whether someone like Jeff Bezos should own the Washington Post, as he now does. Uh, He has commercial interests. Amazon is a very large company. Does that make a difference? And the answer, of course, it does make a difference. Uh, Rupert Murdoch, another example, undoubtedly, I think it's fair to say, sees it as the responsibility of his editors to at least not to damage his own commercial interests. And there are questions about how far he actually pushes them to support his commercial interests. So it is difficult. And if they have different political views, as they tend to do, then you have a, a natural, uh, inevitable clash looming. In other words, there, there will be clashes. And the question you have to ask is, well, is the journalism really acting in the public interest? You know, the rights of the press, which the Supreme Court mentioned, derive from the fact that the press is the guardian, a defense of, you know, a democracy, the public in a democracy. And so if the newspapers are doing that job effectively, holding the government to account, if you like, then that is normally regarded, and I would certainly regard as a strong positive that uh, owners should have an interest in pursuing. And that the journalism, the editorial, the editor of a newspaper has that responsibility to take on that job. But the question, of course, which is, I think, implicit in this first question is, you know, is that what the press is doing most of the time? Uh, And you can argue well actually a lot of what the press does is nothing to do with serving to protect the democratic interests of of the public, uh, but is doing other sorts of things, as we've seen recently with issues around privacy and uh, phone hacking and so on. But going back to your first point, just to answer that as, as I see it, if, and perhaps I might ask you to comment on that before we go on to the second one. Owners and editors, it's always been like that. Uh, it's a trade-off. Unfortunately, the kind of people who buy newspapers, rather like the kind of people who buy football clubs, uh, are not always... Um, Let's put it this way. They're not buying newspapers in order to, um, you know, to do this historic role of defending the public. Uh, They're doing it for their own uh, commercial interests. And there are lots of issues that come from that. So I think the the tensions are inevitable and uh, they can often be quite harmful. And
1: in a way, you could argue that the ownership of the newspapers, obviously, it must be capitalists, the owners of the newspapers, because it's a business. After all, it's a business. From their point of view, it's a business. But the editors all tend to be the sort of editors who want to appease, I think, the readers. And so I remember somebody who I know very well, who's very old, told me that he had a conversation with it was either Beaverbrook or Rothermere, who told him that all journalists always were, always are, and always will be left leaning, whereas the owners. Mm -hmm being capitalists, they're of a a different political colour, and therefore there's always going to be this tension between the two. I don't think that that's changed. This conversation took place many, many years ago, even a few decades ago. But this person who had this conversation with, I can't remember if it was Beaverbrook or Rothermere, told me this just the other day. And he said that uh, this has not changed. It was true then, and, and it's still true now. And I would think that the matter is compounded or made more difficult today because in the old days you had newspapers which were printed and you and I went to buy them in the morning. But today it's quite different because it's all online, it's much quicker and the reverberations of a piece of news are really like lightning, if you like. And so the message tends to get blurred, I think. And I'm saying this because it can lead straight into the second question. Of all right, let's say that the newspapers and the media are there to serve the governed. Fine, but what about this growing wave of some call it misinformation, others call it disinformation, which is even worse. Others call it fake news, and so the whole the whole meaning of these of these expressions are subject to interpretation. But I don't know if it's ever occurred to you that when you read an article in a newspaper about a subject that you happen to know very well and about people that you happen to know very well, it's always struck me whenever that happened to me that the content of these articles about situations or people that I happen to know very well and that were written about was completely off the mark, wide of the mark. And so... Was that disinformation, misinformation, bad journalism? And so it's all very well for the judge to say that the newspaper has a duty to serve the governed. But at what point is this duty to serve the governed being misused in order to, well, for whatever reason, but it's misused. And the end result is that the governed is actually not served properly.
0: Right. Well, you're absolutely right. That uh, That is a very important issue. And there are lots of ways of looking at it. I mean, as I said, it's not quite as simple as it appears. That's always the problem. It's not as simple as it appears. There are many aspects of this. I mean, one of them, for example, is that, I mean, as you know, I worked in a newspaper for a number of years, 15 years at least, full-time. And I know the newspaper world pretty well. Uh, but it has changed enormously. So you're absolutely right about that. And that's changed the parameters of this debate. But in the traditional world of newspapers, I mean... It certainly wasn't the case in the UK that all uh, journalists were left leaning, not at all, nor indeed were the the newspapers. But you can't be a good journalist unless you have an inquiring mind and uh, a sceptical mind. I mean, there've been enough cases of things like the behaviour that the Pentagon Papers revealed. If you understand how organisations work, how bureaucracies work, how governments work, there is a huge vested interest in making sure that things appear in a good light. And now we have a huge public relations industry whose job is to do just that. So if you are a journalist, you're up against, you know, newspapers are small organizations. Even back in the good days, they didn't have very large budgets. Journalists are quite expensive people. If you want them to do the job properly, you've got to pay them well, and you've got to to look after them well, and you've got to give them the resources to do what they need to do. And it's very difficult in a free competitive world for a lot of newspapers to do that. So it's not surprising that they make mistakes. It's not surprising, though, either that they are trained and you are trained as a journalist, you know, to be sceptical. Whether that tips over into being a cynical uh, or b, politically motivated uh, is a good question. And often there will be a connection. You know, people do become very disillusioned as as journalists when you see the kind of things that you're exposed to all the time uh, in many small ways, just as much at the local parish council as you do at the, uh, you know, the national state level. So I think it's natural that they, you know, you are trained to be sceptical to say, okay, someone, you know, somebody in authority is saying this, is it actually right? And quite often it turns out to be somewhat distorted as well. It's not the whole truth. It may be part of the truth, but it's not the whole truth. So I think there is that natural instinct and that can often lead journalists astray in some cases. Plus the fact that, of course, they don't have the knowledge across such a wide level of experience as you would have in one particular area that you know very well. And so, yes, there's a lot of misrepresentation uh, and there is a lot of lack of understanding. The difficult question is when it gets into, is it actually deliberately misinformation or is it something that is put right over the passage of time? And in a good newspaper, things are, will be put right. They do have a standard, you know, a code of behavior and things eventually, you know, it's journalism by its nature is only once every 24 hours or at least used to be. Now it's all day, but it used to be once every 24 hours. And OK, you knew you were putting across an imperfect version of the truth, but at least it was a kind of a what uh, was once described as the first draft of history. You're putting across, you know, the current view of what's happening uh, and you may have to refine that later on and good newspapers would do that. They would keep going at a story, broaden it out and find out a more contextual uh, image. In the modern world, you're quite right. I mean, in the world of social media, the internet, as I've said, newspapers now have to perform 24 hours a day. There's no time to sit back and to do the kind of research that uh, you need to do. I mean, for example, if I just mentioned this one point, in the post, you know, one of the criticisms of the film is that it's all about the Washington Post. And yet actually it was the New York Times that first got hold of the Pentagon Papers and spent three months researching it all, building up the whole archive to really understand all the material that was there. Three months they spent before they actually published the first story. Okay, and then they got hit by an injunction. The, uh, the administration obtained an injunction in a court Uh, And that gave the Washington Post, which hadn't got the the Pentagon Papers at that point, the opportunity to go out and publish and have their own battle with the law. And that's one of the criticisms. It sort of glorifies the Washington Post uh, at the expense of the New York Times, which are doing exactly the kind of thorough job that you, you know, you would like to think the newspapers did. So it is quite nuanced, I think, in that area. And, um, you know, there's no right way. Eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. And, uh, you know, newspapers are engaged in that, uh, in that struggle, but they don't always get it right. And there are lots of dangers, particularly now, I think, in this instant communication world.
1: I think that's fascinating what you've been saying. And I didn't know that it must have caused frictions between The Washington Post and The New York Times, obviously. But if I can just move on and ask you what probably will end up as being the last question of today's very interesting discussion. It makes me think of that slogan, which is the public has a right to know. And that is often used as a reason for forcing disclosure of the most banal things, of the most private things, confidential and so on. In your long experience as a journalist and a reporter covering all sorts of areas, as I know you have done and still do, is there a limit to what the public has a right to know? And if there is a limit, who sets the limit? Is it the government? Is it the courts? Or is it someone else? I'm very interested to hear your thoughts about the public right to know.
0: Right, again, this is a very topical issue, as you know. And the answer is that um, the ultimate authority has to be the public itself. Uh, and that is really a quite a difficult concept to wrestle with. But let's just go back to the Pentagon Papers. Remember, what was the impact of the Pentagon Papers? OK, the administration kept coming back the Pentagon and then later the Nixon administration, the senior, very top officials in the Nixon administration, tried to shut the story down on the grounds that it was disclosing states' secrets, and that was damaging to the country overall. And I think most people would accept that in certain conditions, times of war being one of them, you know, there are occasions when you need to you know, keep things quiet, okay? But that is not generally a presumption. In the Pentagon Papers, it actually wasn't true. The real problem with the Pentagon Papers was that the government knew they would be in trouble with public opinion if this information came out. They made that clear. One of the people who was actually involved said it was 70% of this was about avoiding the humiliation of having to accept that they'd got it wrong. They'd failed the Vietnam War was not working even by its own stated objectives. So I think in terms of government policy, yes, the public does have generally have a right to know unless it can be demonstrably illustrated that it is not in the public interest on grounds of security or whatever. And deciding where that dividing line is is very complicated. But in other matters, of course, you know, that does come right up against this issue of privacy and whether or not people's personal information should be protected. And again, I think this is not something you can actually define so precisely in law that it's always clear whether it is or not. I mean, obviously publishing details about people's private lives... Which the phone hacking scandal in the UK certainly illustrated where, you know, popular tabloid newspapers were regularly tapping phones of any kind of celebrity, not just public uh, figures in the government or in the monarchy, but also people in uh, just ordinary lives, people, film stars and people. And I think most people would accept there's absolutely no justification for that whatsoever. OK, that it is intruding into people's private lives as long as we have the kind of society we have over here is not desirable or indeed defensible. But the more complicated questions are, for example, you know, it's of no great personal interest if somebody is cheating on their wives, but if they're a a politician who's going around saying, you know, I'm an advocate of family life and all that kind of stuff, you can argue that is justifiable interest. You're exposing at the very least hypocrisy uh, and maybe worse, uh, something worse. Um, And again, more recently, we've had this issue about David Cameron, the former British prime minister, lobbying the government in a commercial interest and his texts have been revealed. Well, is that in the public interest or not? Well, you can argue by that. Is, is that not a private matter for, you know, the business involved? Well, I think it is certainly in the public interest for that to be disclosed and to be discussed and to be defended and so on. But who should decide it? That's, that is the issue you raise and that's the difficult one. The courts will do their best, but it's a very heavy-handed way to try and, uh, to try and deal with these issues. And ultimately, if it becomes you know, to that test, then the courts have to decide. But even in the case of the Pentagon Papers, you know, the Supreme Court judgment was by six to three, and many of the judges disagreed with each other about the more detailed aspects of it. Uh, And indeed, there was still a risk that the Washington Post would be prosecuted, and the man who leaked the Pentagon Papers was being prosecuted as well under the Espionage Act. Uh, Despite the Supreme Court judgment, they didn't rule that out. They didn't say that was a crime. So that's an issue about you know leaking and so on. Is that justified in the public interest? So it's a very complicated area. But you're definitely right. There are limits, uh, and they've become much harder in the modern world where information technology allows so much information about our private lives to be made available to commercial interests or indeed to government interests. So yeah, very worried about that. And I think a lot of people in the media and some enlightened people in the government are also worried about that.
1: Well, I hope I don't want to conclude this by saying, well, we ain't seen nothing yet in terms of being able to keep any of one's matters uh, private or not or whether we will end up being in a sort of Orwellian situation where everything is fully disclosed I don't know and I also think that we'll continue to have this discussion for for many years to come and I look forward to that but it's something that we need to zero in on very carefully in order that we don't get society in a situation where where anything goes, especially for the younger generation. So I think that we need to keep a close eye on.
0: You're absolutely right about that. I mean, it is it's a fast evolving thing, and the technology changes have made it many more complicated issue than it was in the past. What I would say, though, by conclusion is that I think that if you if you worry about these issues, you know, you have to regard the media, the press, as potentially one of your best protectors. I mean, in other words, they are better placed to uh, defend these kind of issues in some ways than individuals are themselves but equally they have the potential to uh, to get it wrong as we said and that does happen a lot and so we're in this kind of slightly ambiguous area where as Donald Trump has shown you know you can distort public opinion or you can you can uh, manipulate public opinion quite explicitly and openly in a way that is damaging to the um, you know the cohesion of society as a whole because if people don't nobody trusts anybody else you're losing one of the uh, things that holds holds society together. Yeah. So, Peter. In any case, I'm hoping that nobody's going to find out all the secrets in my private life that I don't want to have disclosed. I hope I haven't got too many, but uh, you never you never know. I would certainly be embarrassed by one or two things if they if they appeared in the newspapers. So I have some sympathy with uh, with people about that. But uh, this is a serious issue, and I think the you know the, the other issue you mentioned at the very beginning, this issue about to what extent. Should, if you're in the government, should you be, A, worried about what is a potential threat from China in this case, Uh, still today, as it was back then. You know, the argument then was, well, the domino theory must stop another country going communist and so on. Was that legitimate? Well, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure about that. Uh, Sort of only if it works kind of thing. Uh, And now we have the same issue. Well, there is this big issue, and perhaps the government's job is to alert people to the issue. But how far should they be taking matters into their own hand if they're not prepared to justify it publicly, you know, like the Iraq war, for example, you know, there was a lot of people were against that and it was based on a false premise. Uh, uh, as far as we can tell now, so it's a very, very complicated area. And I think both for governments uh, and for us as citizens.
1: And I'm sure we'll be discussing that many times uh, in the weeks and months ahead so that we spread out our topics and not only concentrate on financial markets, of which, obviously, in which a lot of things have happened recently, and no doubt, sooner or later, we'll go back to that. But, Jonathan, it was very, very nice, as usual, very interesting hearing your views and thoughts, because the difference between us is that you were actually in that space and have been all your life, and I have been an observer from the outside.
0: Well, the way that newspapers were produced in those days... Uh, it was very much like making sausages. I mean, you know, you wouldn't want to you wouldn't want to see it in action, but you hope that the end result is uh, is at least um, of some value.
1: <laughs> well I always I thought every- that <laughs> everything that you always wrote, I found very interesting, as you well know, after all these decades that we've known each other.
0: Well, they are very kind to say so, but uh, I know nothing, really. In the great scheme of things, I know very little. Uh, And you're very wise, Peter, so, you know, (laughs) between us, we might work something out. (laughs) (laughs) I look forward to that, Jonathan, and have a very nice weekend. You have been listening to the Moses
1: and Methuselah podcast, hosted by Jonathan Davis and Peter Silen. These podcasts are independently edited and produced. You can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels or by signing up on the Moneymakers or Eminem podcast website. Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice.